Welcome to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. At Victory, we value love in action through growing, connecting, serving, and giving. We work to show God's love and share His truth as we love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. Here's this week's sermon by Pastor Terry Green. We're in the book of Ruth, and we're in the fourth chapter today. We've been looking through this book on Sunday mornings. And if we were to make a movie out of Ruth's life, it would start out as a tragedy. It would start out as a tragedy. Her her husband died young. They had no children. She was left alone in the city. She went with her mother-in-law to a new location, but, but she lost her family there. Then it would turn into an adventure. Ruth and Naomi uh, journeyed from where they were in Moab to go back to Bethlehem in uh, Judea in Israel. And and they made that journey together. And, you know, for Kathy and I to have driven 230 or 40 miles up that way and then come back, that's no big deal. I did it on my motorcycle in one day. Drove up, went, and Jim Ricosi and I went to a funeral up there, and then we drove back together that night, and, and that's no big deal. But for them, every step, it was a journey. It was a walk. And, you know, the Chinese proverb, the uh, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, but it also includes thousands and thousands and thousands of other steps to get a thousand miles. And, and so... Naomi and Ruth had this long journey that probably took weeks, if not a couple of months, for them to go from where they were to where they wanted to go. And the Bible doesn't describe the journey. It doesn't describe what happened. It doesn't describe anything. It just says they left there and showed up there. And then then it would turn into an ordinary life, an, an ordinary life film. They have those. Um, and Ruth and Naomi, they're in the, the town, and Naomi starts working in the fields, and day after day after day after day, week after week after week after week, for months on end, Ruth is out harvesting, first the barley harvest, then the wheat harvest, just working and laboring in the field. And then it would turn into kind of a romance. Naomi's trying to set Ruth up with Boaz, and, and Boaz is trying to figure things out. And, and uh, then uh, it would end with the marriage and children and happily ever after, right? Well, happily ever after only happens in movies, uh, not in real life. Uh, but uh, the tragedy would be overcome, the adventure survived, they, they would have great hope for the future and the hope for future generations. And the book of Ruth gives us all of this. If we made a movie out of this, it would be a movie about faith in God and commitment to each other. Ruth made a commitment to follow God and a commitment to stay with Naomi. And because of her vertical commitment to God the Father and of her horizontal commitment to Naomi, God blessed and enriched her life, and we learn from her today, thousands of years later. We're looking back at how God blessed and used Ruth back in that day. So it would be a movie that talks about hope and blessings and tragedy and difficulty, but hope and blessing in the midst of the daily difficulties and the life tragedies. 
Father, thank you that we can trust you with our lives. Thank you that you are gracious and merciful and forgiving because we desperately need your forgiveness. We struggle. Sometimes we doubt. We need you. And we thank you that you gave yourself for us and to us. And your Holy Spirit now lives within us. We pray that as we look at your word today, we would learn, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. And thank you for the example that we have of Ruth in the Bible, of a woman who made a commitment to follow you. And we see all through the rest of her life how that factored in how she worked on the job, how she handled the difficulties of her life. She chose to trust and follow you. And I pray that we would do exactly the same. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look in chapter 4, we're going to start out in verse number 1. That's generally where chapters begin. Verse number 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of Boaz had spoken, that Boaz had spoken up, came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. And then he came aside and sat down. In verse 2, He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down and then he came to the close relative and said, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. Then he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz calls a meeting. This is the beginning of this chapter. Boaz is calling a meeting. And in this meeting, Boaz is going to talk to this other person. Now, it makes it sound like Boaz is a little bossy, doesn't it? Hey, you sit here. You 10 people, you sit here. He wasn't calling a jury and having a trial. He wasn't being bossy. This was normal life for them. Now, before I became a pastor, I was a business manager, and we had annual business meetings. We had managers from all over the country uh, fly in. We had the meeting in Texas because that's where our corporate office was. We were a Delaware corporation, but our corporate office was in Texas because we saved money on business taxes by having it structured that way. And nobody wanted to really live in Delaware. <laughs> we didn't anyway. That We didn't do much business in Delaware. Uh, but but we have the managers from all over, they would come in, and it was a normal thing for me to stand up and speak and challenge and encourage the dozens of managers from around the country had flown in. And I wasn't being bossy, I was the boss, but I wasn't being bossy. I was just conducting the business. That's how we did it. We have uh, ministry leadership team meetings here at church. We gather uh, people together, those who are on the leadership team, and I'll mention that a little bit more tonight. Uh, But we gather together, we meet together, we talk about the business of the church, we pray about it, we decide. Sometimes we have conversations that go back and forth. Sometimes the whole group just votes on something. Sometimes I or one of the others will say, well, what if we do this? And everybody's like, yeah, we can do that. We'll do that. And, and, 
And that's how we conduct business. Our church has an annual meeting and those who are members come and they vote on missionaries. And in fact, we had Aiden up here sharing a little bit about uh, his ministry with uh, campus ministry with um, CAC, Central Arizona College. And he particularly works with the Maricopa campus more than Signal Peak campus, but he does both. And, and, uh, Aiden became a missionary of our church, not because I like Aiden, which I do, just to clarify, okay? But, but that's not how he became a missionary. He didn't become a missionary because our deacons like him. He became a missionary of our church because the members of the church said, yes, we want to support him in that work. And so he is. And uh, this is how they conducted business in their day. They would go to the city gate and they would gather the people who were around the gate And there were some people who just sat at the gate all day. You know, Proverbs 31 talks about the industrious woman and her husband sitting with the elders at the gate. That's where they conducted the business. He wasn't just lazy. He might have been, but he wasn't just lazy. Uh, He was also conducting the business of the community. And so he gathered these people together and he had this meeting and he wanted them to understand what was going on. So he presents the issue. Here we have this land that Naomi had and you have to decide, are you going to purchase that land back so it now comes back into the family tribal trust? I mean, he he would own the land but it was within the tribe. They had family tribes that they tried to keep the land in those family tribes. Uh, Now, when my dad died, uh, he and my mom had owned a house in Tucson. And when mom died, the house was 100% dad's. And then when dad died, uh, the house went to his kids. Uh, My older brother didn't have to move into that house and take over that property. He was glad because he had a different house that he liked a lot more uh, a few miles away. Uh, But in our culture, it's not that way. But in their culture, it was. And so now they were going to buy back this land and then bring it back into their tribal area. And so that's what they were going to do. Now, um, as we look through this, we're going to look at a short passage, and then we're going to talk about something we can learn from that. And this first thing is that it's important for God's people to know enough about the culture that we can function within our social norms, that we can function within our social norms. All right. Do we have freedom of speech in America? Yeah. We have limited freedom of speech. What's something you cannot say in a crowded movie theater? You cannot yell in a crowded movie theater. You can't yell fire unless there's a fire. If there's a fire, you want to yell fire. But you can get arrested for yelling fire. It's a cultural norm that we can't do that. They made that law because stupid people did it. And people got trampled and died when there was no fire. It's also a felony, a felony to point a plastic but realistic looking gun at someone else. If they think it's a real gun, you have committed a felony. That's why when they make squirt guns for kids, they're like, 
chartreuse and brilliant orange and bright yellow, and, and they don't make them anything looking like a real gun. And so we need to understand cultural norms. We don't have to agree with everything our culture does, but we have to understand it. Uh, the Bible praises uh, the people of Issachar because they understood the times and they could act upon it and act accordingly. So God's people need to know enough about the culture. Boaz knew how to handle this situation. He was a follower of God and he was pursuing God, uh, but he had to know how this was going to work. Now, I think the volume just jumped up when I stepped back here. Is this not working or something? It's working okay? All right. I don't, I don't know what happened. Uh, but last week it kept skipping. I asked Megan to just delete the podcast because parts of the message were just not there on the podcast. I sound bad enough, but when part of it's missing, then it's a real problem. But listen, God calls us to live within our communities without adopting the values of our community. We live within without adopting those values. Uh, so we show respect for the office of those who are elected officials. We have a big election coming up in two days. If you haven't voted already uh, by a, a pre-ballot, uh, then you should vote on Tuesday and uh, cast your vote for at least the least bad person. If you can't find a favorite, one you really like, vote for the least bad. And there's some propositions that uh, you can vote on, and we should. We should show respect for the office of those who hold the position. That's why when we refer to the governor, whether it's somebody you like or somebody you dislike, they are the governor of Arizona. We don't call him Jim Bob, even if his name really was Jim Bob or her name was Jim Bob. We wouldn't call it that name. We would call them the governor. And we show respect also for the rule of law. How many of you can think of at least two judicial decisions in your lifetime that you totally disagree with? If you can't, then you haven't been paying much attention. But we still support the rule of law. There are countries where there is no rule of law. The one who rules is the one who has the biggest gun and the most goons. And with the guns and the goons, they rule. And that's not healthy. We support the rule of law, even when we disagree with the rules of law. So this was a normal thing in their culture when there was a decision to be made and it needed witnesses. Then you would call a gathering of those at the gate. It wasn't magical to have 10 people, but they needed a group of people. They needed the two people, the primary people involved, which would be Boaz and the other guy. They needed them involved and then they had to have witnesses there. And, and then there's another thing that they did. So, uh, we're going to read a few more verses here where Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. We don't have that function in our culture. But in their culture, the family member who would buy back the debt, pay off the debt, release the family members from that bondage or give them the freedom, then that person became the kinsman redeemer. So in verse 4, the other guy says, I will take the land, because he's interested in the land. 
But then Boaz expounds on it in verse 5. He says, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now, that's what they did in their culture. They would, you would marry the widow, and then the first child would be the one that would go, that would be in the name of the one who died. The firstborn son would carry on the name of the dad who had died or the husband who had died. And so that was the norm in their culture. And then he said, and then you would perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Then if you had other kids, then they would belong to you. So if Boaz and Naomi had three sons, the first son would be in the name of Malon, uh, Naomi's husband who had died, and then the second and third sons would be in the name of Boaz. So the first one would be called the son of Malon, and the other two would be called the sons of Boaz, even though Boaz would be the one raising all three. So that's how it worked. All right, verse number six. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, he doesn't say why he cannot. Now, it's possible he's biased against Ruth the Moabitess. That's a possibility. We don't know. It's also possible that he wants to make sure he keeps the inheritance for his older son clear and not connected with the uh, inheritance that would go to the son of Malon that would be born to Boaz and Ruth. Uh, we don't know. Even though he probably already had a wife and kids, in their culture, you would then take this other woman as a second wife and try and raise up kids for the one who died. That's not the way our culture works. Aren't you glad? One time I was sitting in church, sitting between my wife, Kathy, and my sister-in-law, Kim, who's my Kathy's older sister. And we were sitting in church and the pastor was preaching on Jacob and how he loved Rachel, the younger sister, who was beautiful. And, and then he got stuck with Leah, the older sister, who wasn't as beautiful. And I turned to my sister-in-law and said, God forbid. She about cracked my ribs. Boom! Right here. Just boom with her left elbow. I was like, Ugh. you know, and Kathy's like, well, you two, stop it. <laughs> Occasionally, she's had to calm me down, uh, like daily. And, but, you know, it's a different culture. I cannot imagine that. I don't even understand the guys who would want two wives. It just doesn't make sense. You cannot have the intimacy and friendship with two women that you can have with one. You, you lose that intimacy as soon as you add another person. And it doesn't make any sense to me. So he said, anyway, we don't know why, but he says, I'm not going to redeem it. You do it. And then there's something else that's part of their culture, a custom in that day. Verse 7 now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. 
I'm really glad we can sign legal documents today and we don't have to share shoes. Uh, I'm glad that we can handle it that way. But that's what they did. So in verse 8, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He took off his sandal and he handed it to Boaz. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So he once he took off his sandal, he handed it to Boaz. Now the Bible doesn't say how Boaz does it, but I kind of picture him doing this, holding it up so they can all clearly see, I have the sandal, and saying, I have made this, you are witnesses, and then they all agreed that they were witnesses. So Boaz had the responsibility of paying off the debt, redeeming the people and the land, and then providing an inheritance, even if the person was dead, like Malon was dead. He had to provide an inheritance to the first son he had that would be called the son of Malon. Now, Boaz is a type or example of Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer. We see in the Old Testament people that there's types of certain things. You, okay, when I read this in the Old Testament and then I look into the New Testament and I see how, oh, this kind of warned us that this was coming. We see that repeatedly. Uh, the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of so much of the Old Testament. And so you say, oh, now I clearly understand this and I see it fulfilled here and I should have seen that coming. It was the type, it was an example, it was a model of what was to come. And the role of kinsman redeemer would not only bless the people in that day, but it was also an illustration of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, who would pay the debt of our sin, who would buy us back and put us into God's family, who would make us the sons of inheritance in God's family. And that's no slam on women. Even the women became sons of inheritance. The women were elevated to a position that in their culture, women didn't get but they were elevated to equal status as full inheritors in Jesus Christ because of what he did. And he is the true and the ultimate redeemer. But we see a picture of what he was going to do through the example of what Boaz did. Boaz paid off the debt. Boaz made her part of his own family. Boaz raised up kids that would receive the full inheritance they would have received if their father had lived. And Boaz did all of that as an illustration for us that Jesus Christ paid your sin debt in full. Now, let me clarify. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have admitted you were a sinner, ask God to forgive your sins because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for those sins, and you believe that he died and was buried and rose again, then when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your sin debt is paid in full. 
Now, some of you were pretty good people before you got saved. Some of you, not so good, right? And it doesn't matter. You all had sin debt. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You all had sin debt. You owed a price. There used to be a country gospel song. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Jesus Christ did that for you on the cross. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you still are under the penalty of your sin, and you need to ask him to be your Savior, to forgive your sins. And Boaz is the type of Jesus doing that. He was an early model of it. And Jesus, though, Boaz, all he did was provide uh, the son with an inheritance that would have come from Elimelech through Malon to this boy. Uh, but, you know, that land is no longer in their family line. Somewhere along the lines, that died off. But the inheritance that we get by becoming part of God's family in Jesus Christ, that lasts forever. Forever. Jesus is going to come. He's already preparing a place for you, a place for us to enjoy together. And we're going to go and we're going to live with him. We're going to dwell with him. We're going to enjoy his presence. I think we're going to still grow and and uh, enjoy and learn and grow. Uh, the Bible never says people are going to sit around on clouds strumming harps. And that sure sounds boring to me. I think there's going to be exciting stuff that we do as we grow and learn and mature and follow Jesus. And we're going to be so awed at who he is and all he does. It'll just be truly awesome. I know people say awesome when their cereal tastes good. But the truth is, only Jesus is awesome, and he really is. So, now the, the city leaders are going to bless Boaz and Ruth. As we continue in chapter 4, uh, in verse 11, uh, the, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah and the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathath, that, that's a household in Bethlehem, and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, this blessing sounds strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> you're Ruth, right? You're going to marry Boaz. Okay? And what do the city leaders and those people at the gate say? I want your house to be like the house of who? Rachel and Leah. Does Ruth really want Boaz to get another wife? I, it, it sounds strange to us. But we have to remember the culture in which it was written. One of the ways we interpret Scripture is historically we want to see what it meant to the people in the day it was written. And so in Ruth's day, in that day, uh, they would look back at Rachel and Leah and they would look at the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And eight of those 12 sons came from uh, Rachel, or from Leah, six, and Rachel, two. And then they each had a handmaid who each also had two sons born to them. And those were the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, even though it, well, anyway, Joseph's two boys got part and Levi didn't get an inheritance of land, uh, but but the 12 tribes of Israel are from the 12 sons of Jacob. And so that was their history. Now, I don't know if you have seen it, but you've got to check out John's tie today. It's got the, uh, the Constitution of the United States on his tie. He's prepped for voting day. And, you know, we, we can look back at that in our culture we have people that we call the founding fathers, and we respect them. Most people, their favorite president is George Washington. Uh, some people, their favorite president is Abraham Lincoln. And some really strange people, their favorite president is still alive today. <laughs> It's okay if you really like some of the presidents we've had. I'm not so thrilled with the ones in my lifetime. And yes, kids, I'm old. I was born when Eisenhower was president. Uh, but when we look at the, the role of our founding fathers, and we have some respect for the sacrifices they went through, how many of them died so that we could have the liberty that we enjoy today. That's how these people look back on the 12 tribes in Israel. These were the, the grandkids and great-grandkids of Abraham, the founder of our nation, and they looked back on him with joy and appreciation. And so when they said, we want your house to be blessed like the house of Rachel and Leah, it didn't mean we hope Boaz finds a second wife who's prettier than you. What it meant was that we want you to be have a rich foundation and a cultural foundation that is going to bless and enrich you like those kids have blessed and enriched this nation. So they, they really wanted them to flourish. They wanted them to thrive. And so it meant a lot to them. And then they talk about the house of Perez, the child of Judah and Tamar. Now, there's a really strange and sordid tale of how Perez was conceived. We're not going to go into that today, but if you've read through that in the Old Testament, then you understand, why would they pick her and him? Well, it was important to them. They wanted to see the blessing of God even through the difficulties of life. And they wanted to see that the thing that starts out as a mess when God blesses, it can end up being a blessing. So what we need to realize is that uh, it, most people will want you to succeed. Most people will. They may not understand how, and they may not be able to describe it or encourage you in pursuing it, but they want you to succeed. And so these people, what they really wanted for Ruth and Boaz was a rich, flourishing life. Now, the examples that they use might not work for us. Uh, when I have counseled with couples uh, in pre-marriage counseling, I show them pictures of people. I have a picture of my great-grandpa 
on my great-grandma. My great-grandpa Paul Dale was a pastor in Pennsylvania, my, my dad's grandpa. And then uh, his wife, Sarah, uh, they loved each other. They were best friends. They served the Lord together. And, and, and that's, when I talk to young couples, I, this is the example God wants you to have, is a oneness in the relationship, a wholehearted commitment and joy to each other and with each other. Now, I also have a picture of my grandpa, my mom's dad. And my mom's dad and his wife were married for 65 years. But they took separate vacations. If, if they came to visit us, he would come one time a year. She would come another time a year. He liked to travel at this time. She liked to travel at that time. They didn't have a closeness with each other. They stayed married to each other the whole time. They stayed faithful to each other the whole time. They had a reasonably good marriage. How many of you think going into getting married, you think, I really hope I have a reasonably good marriage? No, you want to have a great marriage. So I say, you can stay together and that's great. Or you can have this oneness. And I point them to Paul and Sarah Dale and say, this is how God would want it to be. And so these people are pointing to these illustrations and say, we want God to bless and enrich your life as God has blessed us because of these people and how it has come down through the generations to us today. Remember, these people are in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was part of what tribe? Tribe of Judah. And Perez was in the tribe of Judah. So they're pointing back to the heads of their tribes and saying, we really want God to bless and enrich your lives. Now, then what happens next? They have a son. They have a son. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. It doesn't talk about the ceremony or the veil that she wore or, uh, you know, how many bridesmaids she had or, you know, none of that really matters. Once you're married, you're married. They, they became husband and wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So they have a son. Now Naomi, um, she changed her name to bitterness uh, when she came back. She was bitter with God. She was frustrated with God. She at one point even encouraged Ruth to don't follow my God. Go follow your own gods. Go back to the gods of Moab. That's what she did in chapter one. But now she's seeing the hand of God and blessing and enriching her life. Now in their culture, they had a saying. In their culture, having a son was way more important than having a daughter. You know, in their culture, like... Um, when Tim and Clorinda, their firstborn child was a girl, people would have said, oh, congratulations. 
But then their second born child was a son. And people would have said, congratulations. I, I actually worked for a Jewish family. The company that when I was a business executive, the, the company was owned by a Jewish family. And uh, when my son Nathan was born, the president of the company called me at the hospital and said, congratulations on the birth of your son. Take the rest of the week off with pay. Just enjoy this time with your son. Well, the next child that we had was Megan. And he called me at the hospital for that too. He said, when are you going to be back? Because it was just a girl. Now, do you think Megan's just a girl? (laughs) Don't say that while she's within arm reach, man. Uh, Listen, they had a saying in their culture that seven sons, better than seven sons, because seven's the number of perfection. So when they wanted to say something was fabulous, they would say, this is better than seven sons. How many of you women wished you had seven sons in eight years, right? Not... Uh, we had a friend who had seven sons, named him John, Jerry, Jim, Joe, Jeff, Jay, and Jack. Uh, uh, I don't know why I can remember that, but I can't remember your name. If you tell it to me today, I'll struggle with it, but uh, maybe because I remembered them before my last concussion. I don't know. But, but listen, that was a saying in their culture. So they said, Ruth is better than seven sons. And you might think, is that the best they could come up with in their culture? Yes, that was the best. In our culture, we would say, Ruth is worth more than a billion dollars. She's better for you, a blessing to you. Uh, She has enriched your life so much more than if you were insanely, fabulously wealthy. And that's where they would look in their culture. See, uh, Obed's name means servant of God. Jesse's name means God gifts. David's name means beloved. We see God's blessing just filtering through this family. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Teenage children are sometimes a heartache too, but children are a blessing from the Lord. The women praised God for his blessing to Naomi. They wanted Boaz's name to be famous in Israel. You know, it's ironic. They had no idea how big Boaz's name would become. They had no idea that perhaps this very day in India, they were preaching about Boaz. In Pakistan, they were preaching about Boaz. In Australia, in China, in Russia, in South America, in all over the African continent, in Europe and Asia and the Americas, uh, people know the name of Boaz because God put Boaz in the lineage of Christ. Everybody knows children are a blessing from the Lord and they wanted him to be famous, but he's not just famous in Israel. He's famous all around the world 3,000 years later. We know the name of this guy. We know his character. We know know people who make us think of Boaz because they have character and integrity and they honor God and they bless their workers and we just see that in them. Boaz is famous because he did the right thing, and he's famous because God blessed his faithfulness. Sometimes people do the right thing and die in obscurity. They never become famous with men, but they have a good reputation with God. 
that's more important. And then there's 10 generations they mention here. 10 generations. In verse 18, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Aminadab, Aminadab begat Nashon, Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, Jesse begat David. Isn't that exciting? Oh man, aren't you glad? We should have this be our memory verse of the month. Now listen, here's the truth. Genealogies and lists of names are a bit boring to read, but they are important. They are important. So let's just look at these 10 generations. We'll put them up here. And then we're going to pull in a list of names from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 has a list of names. And we're just going to take a little excerpt from that list of names. And we're going to put it up beside these. Do you notice anything? Now, you're going to see the 10 generations described in Ruth. And 10 of the generations described in the ancestry of Mary, the mother of Jesus, are identical. They are the same. Now you remember, Jesus is not a son of Joseph. He was called the son of Joseph, but he is the son of God. Son of Mary, son of God. So the human component of Jesus is from his mother, Mary. And these people are all in the line of his mother, Mary. So you see at the top, it's Perez. That's why they go back to Perez, even though the story around his conception and birth is a little sordid, a little odd. Uh, he's still the father of this group of people. And so some of your translations will list names slightly differently, like it'll say Perez instead of Perez, uh, but they're, they're the same people. And uh, Perez and Hezron, uh, they were in the family of Judah when they moved down to Egypt during the days of Joseph in Genesis 46. Amenadab, he is named in the Bible as the father-in-law to Aaron, the older brother of Moses. And so he was, Aaron was the first Hebrew priest, the older brother of Moaz, and Exodus 6 says his father-in-law was Amenadab. Then Solomon and Rahab, these were in the days of Joshua and the spies. What city had Rahab lived in? She didn't live in Jericho after that. Jericho ceased to exist. They tore it down. They ripped the stones apart so there were not two stones on top of each other. Uh, but Solomon and Rahab were in the days of Joshua and the conquest of, of Canaan. And Rahab saved the Hebrew spies in Jericho. That's mentioned in Joshua chapter 2 through 6. And then Boaz and Ruth were the days of judges. This book begins talking in the days of the judges. They were before King Solomon. They were in that time frame. And then Jesse was the man told by the prophet Samuel to gather up his sons. And did Jesse gather up his sons? Not all of them. He left one out. David. And so David is that forgotten son who became a psalter in Israel. He wrote many of the greatest worship songs and lyrics in the history of the world. David wrote them in the book of the Psalms. And David became a great king in Israel. 
Some say the greatest king in Israel. And as we read through that genealogy, what you realize is you see the hand of God at work. This is not just Judah really messed up and therefore got a son Perez. And uh, No, this is the hand of God at work. People made mistakes. People made good choices. But the hand of God worked through it all. And we read the generation after generation, we see the hand of God at work. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David in the ancestral line of Jesus because she chose to follow God and God chose to richly bless her. So will you choose to follow God through Jesus Christ? Will you trust and follow Jesus Christ? That's the example that Boaz and Ruth set for us. Will you set that example for others? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to grow and mature in our faith, to walk with you. And we are so grateful that when we walk with you, you actually walk with us. We are richly blessed to be called by your name, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Victory, please visit our website at victoryarizona.org. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page or by emailing victory at victoryarizona.org. We'd love to help you accept and follow Jesus Christ.